It was George Santayano who was a 19th, 20th century professor at Harvard who coined the phrase that those who fail to remember the past are doomed to repeat it. The spiritual truth of that statement is no better on display than in the book of Judges. The book of Judges shows us a fallen people and a faithful God. Today we begin an eight-part sermon series as we walk through Judges. It is built upon a study that we did several years ago at the gathering. The cycle of the book of Judges is rather monotonous. It is the same cycle over and over again. The people of God dive into disobedience. Their disobedience is disciplined by God Almighty. When they get to the bottom of the barrel, they cry out in despair unto the Lord. The Lord delivers them by raising up a judge. Their delight in God is short-lived. In fact, it's as long as that judge lives. But once that judge dies, then the cycle begins again. Disobedience that goes to discipline, that ends up in despair. God delivers them through the work of a judge. They delight in God for a short period of time as long as that judge lives. And the cycle goes over and over and over again. The time frame of the book of Judges goes from Joshua's conquest of the promised land to the establishment of the monarchy. The theme verse of the entire book is the last line of the book, that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Does that sound like any other nation? Where everyone does just whatever he or she sees fit to do. So this morning, I want us to kick off this study. It's a sermon that's entitled A Roller Coaster Religion. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Judges chapter 2. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Judges chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 6, I'll conclude at verse 19. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who, who, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah Heres in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Asherah. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. When Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, 
but they prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was the judge and and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices, and they refused to give up their stubborn ways. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The book of Judges starts out very promising. In chapter 1, verse 4, we are told that the Lord handed over the Canaanites to the Israelites. In chapter 1, verse 22, we simply read that the Lord was with them. I can't think of a better statement than that. For the Lord was with them. His presence, his power, his promises were accompanying his people. Now, he was very clear. He told them to kick out the Canaanites. But when you get towards the end of chapter 1, on seven occasions, we read of partial obedience. We read of this in verse 27, in verse 28, in verse 29, in verse 30, in verse 31, in verse 32, and in verse 33. For seven straight verses, there's a portrait of partial obedience. I read those words and I think to myself, how could they be so stupid? They have the presence of the Lord. They have the power of the Lord. They have the promises of the Lord. How can they be so stupid? God has brought them out of Egyptian captivity. He made a way when there was no way. He enabled them to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And even though they wandered in the wilderness for decade after decade, finally they got to the promised land. Joshua led them over. All the Lord wants is for them to be obedient to him and to his word. How can they be so stupid? And as soon as I ask that question of the text, there's another question that floods my mind. And the other question is simply this, how can I be so stupid? How can we be so stupid? For we have the presence of God in our lives, amen? If we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, he dwells within us. We have his power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is, is right there at our disposal. And we have his promises. They're codified right there in the sacred book. We've got the sacred writings. How could we be so stupid? Why is it that we drift off into partial obedience? And somehow we think that partial obedience is sufficient. The scripture tells us that we are to make disciples of all the nations. And yet many of us find it hard to go across the street and have a gospel conversation with our neighbor that lives right next door. The scripture is clear that we are not to forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, yet we've convinced ourselves if we show up or tune in once a month, we are faithful in our worship attendance. Scripture is clear that we're to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and yet we've convinced ourselves that God is pleased with our tip instead of our tithe. After all, there is profound inflation, and God must understand that. That when there's inflation, God's people aren't supposed to give, are they? Scripture is very clear that we are to be truth-tellers. 
Yet how many times have we employed a little, a little lie uh, just to get us out of a tough spot? Scripture's clear, isn't it, that we are to be people of morality and purity, and yet still we entertain promiscuous thoughts and occasionally promiscuous deeds. And we think to ourselves, well, that we're not nearly as bad as so-and-so. They're far worse than we are. Why do we think that partial obedience is acceptable in the sight of God? If it didn't work in the days of Judges, I suspect it won't work in these days as well. I read the opening chapter of Judges and I ask myself, how could they be so stupid? And then I realize that the Bible is really a mirror. It shows me not necessarily how I ought to live, but it shows me how I actually live. And when I look to the page of the scripture, I see my own reflection and I ask myself, how in the world could I be so stupid? It was Warren Wiersbe who said, the sin that we fail to conquer in our lives will eventually conquer us. That statement is so true in the book of Judges. We get to verse 10 of our passage. Joshua has already passed on. All those elders, all of that generation, they've already uh, received their inheritance. They've already gone to heaven. In verse 10, there's a new generation that's been born, a new generation that has been raised. And here's the description of that generation. They neither knew the Lord nor his mighty deeds. How terrible. A whole generation of people, and they did not know the Lord, and they did not know his mighty deeds. They did not know that Yahweh is the God of the cosmos. He's the creator of everything seen and unseen. He flung the stars into space, taught the sun how to shine, told the ocean to only come so far. It is this God who taught the birds how to fly and the fish how to swim. He spoke and nothing became something. He breathed into the nostrils breath of life. He formed Adam and Eve and every Adam and Eve since then. It is God who protected Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. It is the Lord who gave faith to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is God who rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity and when they were between a rock and a hard place with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his army behind them, it is God who separated the waters so they crossed on dry ground. It is the Lord who provided everything. There was a generation of people that were raised. They knew not the Lord nor his mighty deeds. I read that statement and I ask myself, who's to blame? Who's to blame for this? A generation of people they don't know the Lord. They don't live for the Lord. They, they don't know his mighty deeds. This nation of Israel, it just might resemble a nation that you live in today. That there's a lot of people in various generations and they don't know the Lord. They don't know how great he is. They don't know his mighty deeds. They don't know his work in the world. There are many people of our generation, many people following our generation, and they do not know the Lord. And they do not know the mighty deeds of God. And I ask myself, who is to blame? Well, ultimately, faith is personal, is it not? Scripture is very clear that no one is without excuse. That no one is without excuse. That everyone can observe and see creation, which is the general revelation of God, and they can acknowledge that there must be a creator, there must be a God. Look at the fine-tuning of the universe. It gives evidence that there is a No one is without excuse. If a person dies without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, they have no one to blame but themselves. I get that. I understand that. 
Oh, but here in Judges and even here in our culture, I would say there, there are two categories of people that really are to blame. One are parents and the other are priests. You look at the life of Judges, who's to blame to, for a whole generation? They do not know the Lord nor his mighty deeds. Who's to blame for that? I would point the finger at mom and dad. Because the, the great link between a generation that knows God and a generation that doesn't know God is the link of the relationship between parent and child. Do you remember what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These commands I give you today are to be placed upon your heart. And then the Lord said to those adults, impress them upon your children. The word impress is a word that means to, to mold. It means to stamp. You and I can identify it as tattoo. That we are to tattoo the commands of God upon the lives of our children. We are to mold them. We are to shape them. We are to speak of the commands of God when we rise in the morning, when we walk and when we sit, when we come back home in the evening. God is to be on our lips. God is to be in our lives. We are to speak the name of Jesus. We are to live out the Christian faith. Oh, but for far too many parents, we think to ourselves, listen, I, I really don't want to shove this down my kid's throat. It was like the driver that I had this past week as he picked me up from the sports camp in Boston, Massachusetts, and took me back to Logan International Airport right there downtown Boston. And as we were traveling, it was an hour and a half drive, and so I was the only one in the car other than the driver, so guess what I got to do? I got to listen for an hour and a half to this man's story. If there's one thing about New Englanders, they love to talk, and so they'll tell their story. And so I quickly realized that this is a great opportunity that God has me here to share the good news of the gospel, and so I did. I spoke, because at first he thought I was a priest. And then he realized I was a preacher. And then, and then as we talked longer, I just kept talking about Jesus. And at one point, he looked in the rearview mirror and he said to me, you know what, I don't think people have to be overly religious. <laughs> so I knew that I'd gotten to the tipping point in his ears and in his heart, that I was, I was, I was on the verge of being one of those fanatical Southerners. And we were just talking about Jesus because... I said, listen, your religion matters very little to me. What matters most to me is do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? It's that relationship that enables us to go from death unto life. It's that relationship that is so paramount. The, the biggest problem in our world is lostness. The only solution is the gospel. The biggest problem in our world is lostness. The only solution is the gospel. When you get to a place where there's a generation of people, a vast, mass number of people, and they do not know the Lord, and they do not know his mighty deeds, who's to blame? The first place you go is to mom and dad. To those mom and dads, those parents who say, listen, I don't want to force anything upon my children. I just want them to kind of come to their own understanding of Christ. I want them to kind of stumble upon their own understanding of the necessity of Jesus in their life. I am not going to push that upon them. If you're one of those parents, can I ask you, do you have that same disposition when it comes to teaching your children about the power of electricity? 
I don't want to teach my child about the power of electricity. I want them to find out on their own. I mean, little Johnny, who's two years old, I mean, he's got to learn sometime if he puts his finger in the socket. I mean, he's going to do it once, and that's going to be it, right? He's going to learn. But far be it from me as his parent to ever teach him uh, the power of electricity. No parent in their right mind would do that. So why are we so dogmatic about electricity, but we're not very dogmatic about Jesus? As parents, we are to impress Christ and his commands upon our children. We are to tattoo them upon our children. To the parent who says, you know, I I don't really want to teach my children necessarily or sway them one way or the other. Listen, you can't help but influence your children. You can't help but to teach them. To not teach them about Jesus explicitly is to teach them something very detrimental about Jesus. So we can't help but to teach. We will teach our children something. They will pick up some value system. They will pick up some worldview. They will pick up some beliefs that they get from the, uh, their mom and their dad. And we had better be very intentional and specific about teaching this generation, our children, our grandchildren, about the Lord, about his mighty deeds. Because we don't need another generation who knows not the Lord nor his mighty deeds. Who's to blame? I'll point to mom and dad. Oh, but I'll also point to the priests. The priest's job in the days of Judges was to read and teach the Torah. Apparently he wasn't doing his job. So in our context, I'll point to the pastors. Our job is to stand on the word of God and declare it unashamedly. Thus saith the Lord, we are just a herald, we are just a mouthpiece, we're just the spokesman for God. And the pastors of our generation, the pastors of our culture, we've got to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Because where we do not proclaim the good news of the gospel, we have a generation, we have a culture who knows not the Lord nor his mighty deeds. So don't ever underestimate your influence in the life and work of this church. I want you to know that as the pastor of First Baptist Church Pelham, I take this responsibility of preaching and teaching the word of God very seriously. I I do my very best to be as clear as possible, to say what God says on a whole number of subjects and and, and to tackle it uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter as we make our way through a sacred text. But I I do my very best. I take this very seriously. This is not something that I handle flippantly, but I, I stand wholeheartedly and unashamedly upon the solid ground of the sacred writings of the book. Proclaim the good news of the gospel. This is something that our small group teachers, our Sunday school teachers do as well. If you are a teacher, whether it's uh, preschool or children or students or adults, don't ever underestimate the power of your influence. You just might be the only God voice that people hear when they come into your classroom. So be sure to speak the name of the Lord and speak his word. Nobody comes to church to hear my half-baked ideas. They're not very good. But people come to church to hear the eternal word of God, and it is always good. 
So we just proclaim God's word. So don't ever underestimate your power as a small group teacher, as a volunteer in nursery or working with the smallest of children or our students or working in upward basketball or going to camp, going to Shaco, going to beach camp. Don't ever underestimate your influence. Don't ever underestimate your power because you just might be the only God voice that some of our students hear. You may be the only God. You may be the tipping voice that they hear. Maybe they hear it from mom and dad, but they've tuned out mom and dad. So then the church comes alongside and reinforces the sacred scripture of God. That which is voiced in the home is also voiced in the house of God. And so together we work so that we have a generation and a culture of people who know the Lord and know his mighty deeds. The chief end of man is to, is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. So you get to the verse 10 and I ask the question, who's to blame? I think, it's, I think it's the parents and I think it's the priests. I think this is why the Lord is telling the Israelites, get away from the Canaanites. Because if you dwell there very long, if you live with the Canaanites, you'll start looking like the Canaanites. That's exactly what happened. The Canaanites in the Old Testament, they're pagan people. They don't believe in God. They follow Baal and his female counterpart, Asherah. These were the god and goddess of fertility. It was believed that Baal and Asherah, they could, they could make the, uh, the, the rain flow and the grain to grow. They could really cause the rain to fall to help the crops. They could make the cattle fertile. They could even make you fertile. And you could have a big family if you paid enough to Baal and to Asherah. And if you did God on, on godly things, God-awful things, around the Asherah poles. If you did all of this, then, then, then those pagan gods and goddesses may shine their favor upon you. And so the Israelites thought to themselves, hey, that's not a bad idea. You know, I think maybe we could do that too. I mean, we got Yahweh, but maybe we also need Baal as well. I mean, we got this God. Why don't we add that God to it? And so they were doing things that the Canaanites were doing. And the Lord said to them, you've got to evict the Canaanites. Because if you live with them very long, you'll start looking like them. You'll start valuing what they value. You'll start emulating them. And instead of the church persuading the culture, the culture just might persuade the church. Does that resemble anything you've ever seen? So this is what's happening in Judges chapter 2. So the people of God, they're looking more like Canaanites. And so God permits for raiders to come in. It's not the Oakland raiders or wherever they are right now. No, these are raiders that would come in and they would... They would plunder whatever they wanted. They would take whatever. The Israelites would bow up. And they would say, you're not going to take my stuff. And they would go to fight them. But God's hand was against them because God was disciplining them. They were disobedient. God disciplined them. It ultimately got to the point where they cried out and they groaned. That word groaning is a significant word because it's a word that if you read your Bible, you've heard that word before. You heard it a couple of times in Exodus when the people were in slavery and they groaned against the Lord. And God heard their groanings and he responded. Whenever God's people groan out to him, they moan, they groan, they cry, they plead. God always hears. Friend, I want you to know God has a soft spot towards you. He really loves you. He, he loves you a lot. And if you get to the place, if you get to the point where you're just crying out to God saying, God, help me, I've made a mess of things. God should 
throw us down and abandon us. But every time, he stoops down and he rescues us. That's what he did here in Judges chapter 2. They groaned, he raised up a judge. Now all throughout these uh, 20-some chapters, we will find about a dozen judges. They're local uh, leaders, they're military leaders, they're civil administrators, and and they're, they're godly people, they're used of God, and they rescue a local tribe from their trouble. And that's what God does here. God raised up a judge. At this moment, we're not given a name of any of the judge, but any of the judges, but at this moment, the Lord just says, I raised up a judge and I saved the people. And oh, they delighted in God. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember how excited you were for the Lord? Nobody could shut you up, could they? I mean, you would just tell anybody and everybody about who God is and what He's done for you. Do you remember when you got saved? Some of us have been in church too long, haven't we? It's not that we've forgotten, it's just that we've become mute. And we no longer speak as passionately as we used to. Well, in this story, God raised up a judge, the judge saved them, delivered them, and and they delighted in God. But it was only short-lived, wasn't it? It lasted as long as the judge lived, and then once the judge died, they returned to their stubborn ways. Does that sound like anybody you know? (laughs) They returned to their stubborn ways. They did evil things, far evil than even their forefathers had done. And the cycle begins all over again. I'll go ahead and tell you that just about every week, we'll get to the end of the passage, and we'll say... We need a better judge. We need a better judge. I mean, this judge was good in the sense that he was able to deliver, but it was only delivered for a short time. We need a better judge. And for about eight weeks, I'm going to tell you we have another judge. In fact, for probably seven plus years, I've been telling you we have another judge. We've got a judge who's, he's not a local judge, he's a global judge. He's not just a judge for a certain time, he's a judge for all of eternity. He's not just a judge who temporarily does a good job, he's a judge who forever does a great job. This judge to which I refer is none other than Jesus the Christ. He's the God-man. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He lived a perfect life. He never made a mistake. He was righteous in everything that he said and everything that he did, even everything that he thought. He never made a mistake. This righteous judge, Jesus the Christ, he's the God-man, fully God, fully human, very God, very human. And about the age of 33, this judge went to the cross on your behalf. This judge died for you. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He had a cross strapped to his back. He went outside the city gate. The Roman soldiers stretched him wide. They nailed rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet, hoisted him into the air for about six hours. One Friday in the third decade of the first century, Jesus endured your hell for you. He took all the punishment that you deserve, all the failure, all all of the disobedience, all of the discipline. He took it upon himself to the point that he said, it is finished. Your payment for sin has been paid in full. And Jesus bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. He, 
He, he was taken down off the cross. He was placed to a borrowed grave. The stone was rolled in front of it. And on the third day, he burst forth from the tomb. The dead man became alive again. Jesus, the righteous judge, could not be held down by your sin, could not be held down by Satan himself, could not be held down even by death. Jesus burst forth victorious in every way so that you may be set free. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Whether you know it or not, you need a righteous judge. And that righteous, eternal judge is Jesus. And so you surrender to him. You do not do what the last line of the book of Judges does, that you do at whatever you see fit to do. No, you say, I want to do whatever he sees fit for me to do. Because I want to live for him. I wonder today, friend, do you find yourself at this point, this juncture of your life where you're saying, how can I be so stupid? I've got his presence. I've got his power. I've got his promises. Why do I keep returning? Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Why do I keep on returning to this? How can I be so stupid? Maybe you find yourself today and and you've just been living with the Canaanites too long. It's not that you're rubbing off on them. They're rubbing off on you. You're living with the Canaanites and you're looking like the Canaanites. To the point that you care more about your crops than your character. The Canaanites were more concerned about their crops. Give money to Baal. Give worship unto Asherah. And maybe Baal and Asherah can help uh, produce grain and uh, produce cattle and produce a big family and maybe some of you are so enamored with stuff that you're more concerned with crops than your character maybe there's some of you who just need to groan out to the Lord today just say Lord help me have mercy on me a sinner I want you to know that on this day of freedom God has done everything needed to set you free God has done everything needed to set you free. That's not a political statement. That's a theological statement. Freedom is not political. Freedom ultimately is theological. God sets people free. And today, friend, whatever shackles you, whatever binds you, whatever holds you, today you can be set free in Christ. My hope it's built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, although the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We ask this request of you. Take us off of a roller coaster religion. Highs and lows, disobedience, momentary delight. Take us off of a roller coaster religion. Set us firmly in the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. And help us, O oh God. 
to be a family, to be a church that influences the community in such a way so that people cannot say, we do not know the Lord, nor of his mighty deeds. Lord, help us to bear witness to you. Lord, have your way in this invitation. We ask all this in Jesus' name.